We are in a race. The race is against time. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter. Welcome to Sound Conversations. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to Sound Conversations. We're down here at the WAC trying a new uh, Skype interview with Dan Zimmeroff, uh, a true renaissance man. Yes. <laughs> uh, been, a, been a long time Seattle resident, but uh, currently now down in the sunny shores of San Diego. So say that five times real fast. <laughs> Go ahead and say hello, Dan. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm uh, really looking forward to this. I, I've been called many things. I'm not sure I've ever been called a Renaissance man. So we'll see uh, how this goes. But I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and, and talk with you a little bit. Yeah, well, you were uh, definitely one one guy we wanted uh, on our short list. And uh, I think you've got a lot of uh, not only an interesting story to tell, but uh, some good doses of inspiration for all of us. Um, Absolutely. Well, I have been called short, so that uh, introduction does apply. <laughs> uh, it's it only matters from the neck up, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All righty. Uh, quick question for you. Well, why don't you just give our listeners a quick background on how you ended up in Seattle? I know you didn't grow up here, but how'd you how'd you end up? Yeah, here? And yeah. Why well, Seattle? Quick might might be a little bit difficult. Um, I was born in Chicago, raised, and I say my formidable years in Southern California, went to college on the East Coast, uh, joined the Navy, was in uh, several different places, uh, but not in the Northwest. And then I timed, we'll probably get to it later in the show, but uh, in 1995, I had graduated from evening law school in Washington, D.C. and was leaving active duty in the Navy at the same time and literally just took out a map of the U.S. My wife at the time and I just said, well, where do, where do we want to go? Uh, we weren't East Coast folks per se, even though I'd been to college there and, as I said, spent some time in the Navy. We're both from Southern California, but at the time the economy wasn't doing too well. And we really were thinking about raising a family and looking somewhere else. And things just pointed up to the Northwest. My parents were, were living there, but I knew that they, they'd only been there a couple of years and they were going to be moving on. I had a friend from college. And it just intrigued me. I had never spent much time uh, up in the Northwest, but it seemed right. And boy, it uh, sure did. 22 years up there. Wow. So did you uh, come to Seattle, Seattle, one of the suburbs? Yeah. Nope. Came uh, Seattle, Seattle. Moved. Uh, we first rented a home for a year in Magnolia. Just got a, a sense of, about the place. And then bought a home in Northgate Green Lake area. Uh, lived there for, I think it was about eight years, and then spent the rest of my time on the east side. Went over to uh, the dark side, <laughs> which isn't so dark anymore. But at the time when I was, when I, you know, I moved in the mid-90s, early 2000s, you know, the east side was something way out there. Obviously not the case anymore. Right. Yeah, the east side has changed significantly, and it's, it's getting developed, and uh, a lot of density is going in. Crazy. And you got a new area code over there, too. Yeah. So now it's the 425 as opposed to the 206. <laughs> Although I'm a 206 guy, I'm a I'm much very much a Seattle guy. Well, I still have my 206 uh, cell phone number even down here in, in SoCal. <laughs> I haven't given it up yet. I'm proud of, proud of it. Good, good, nice. good. So let's 
backtrack a little bit about why why the Navy? Why not? Uh, what what made you choose that branch? Yeah, well, I'd always wanted to fly. In fact, my uh, my parents tell a story of when I was like three years old, I'd be running down the sidewalk, flapping my uh, my arms like a bird. <laughs> and I started flying when I was 15 years old. I was washing cars and washing airplanes to get money, and started taking lessons at 16. You can get your pilot's license at the age 17. So on my 17th birthday, I went and took that that test. Flew a little bit, but ran out of money pretty quickly uh, in college. I'd always also wanted to be a lawyer, just come from a family of lawyers. Don't come from a family of military or, or aviators, but lawyers. So I was trying to reconcile the two. Well, how do I synthesize being a lawyer and flying? I thought, well, I better do flying first, because if I go be a lawyer for a while, I'll probably never get that second chance. And I, in freshman year, I started in the Marine Corps, actually. They have a program there, unlike the other officer session programs where you, you can go to boot camp, officer boot camp, while you're in college. And then when you graduate, you're commissioned a second lieutenant and you go do uh, the Marine thing that uh, officer candidates go, I'm sorry, at uh, the basic school. So that's where I started. And then I actually lost my aviation guarantee. I said I had a depth perception problem, uh, some arcane test Is looking at tubes in there. <laughs> yeah. So even though I, I flew, I played, I was, uh, Hockey, a goalie, I could snap you know, pucks out of the air, but somehow in this one test, so I lost my aviation guarantee. I said, gee, do I really want to be a grunt in the Marines? I mean, God, God willing, they're, they're terrific uh, infantry, but that, that wasn't me. I wanted to fly. So I went to the recruiter, and I was a sophomore in college, and I went to the Air Force. I said, yeah, we, we've got a lot of pilots. We really don't uh, need you. But the Navy said, yeah, um, we've got this program called NFO, Naval Flight Officer. You can be in the back of an F-14 or an A-6. Uh, but we really need a science background. So how, how are you in calculus and physics? I said, well, I'm a liberal arts guy. They said, well, go take some some technical classes. So I did. I'm a liberal arts uh, undergrad. Well, I'll, I'll go take some math classes. Did that, went back the next year, and they said, sure. Um, sign on the dotted line. So I went to uh, the Navy. Didn't even think second of it. Uh, I knew I wanted to be around the water, Navy, and fly off aircraft carriers. So it was a, a pretty pretty obvious fit for me. Aircraft carriers, Wow. Yeah, you know, so actually, I do have one uh, question for you, then, but I'm going to wait on wait on that for a minute. But what? Uh, so for our listeners, we're talking to a Top Gun pilot. Uh, what? How'd you get in that school? How did? How do? How did you qualify? Yeah. What so at the, at the time, so Top Gun, the program came out in the middle of the Vietnam War. We'd actually been getting our butts kicked by these North Vietnamese in these arcane airplanes and getting shot down. These Phantoms, a, a lot of the, the fighters at the time, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but um, of the fighter community, the F-4 Phantom, they actually built it without a gun because they thought, oh, the day of, of air combat maneuvering ACMs over, we've got these high-tech missiles, we'll just shoot them out of the sky before we even see them, before they see us. Well, that didn't happen. So I think it was about 1971 or so, 72, they came up with a school, the Navy Fighter Weapons School, known as Top Gun, out here in Miramar. And the goal of it was to teach combat, go back and say, hey, we got to figure out dogfighting and how we're going to do that. So the idea is to, to build a cadre of instructors that were experts and then call teach the teachers, then teach a certain percentage of the regular aviators and then those aviators in the squadrons because they don't have enough money and enough time to really give that elite level of training for everybody. Of course, you get basic training and, and intermediate and actually some advance in, in fighter tactics, but not to the level of Top Gun. Mm. So 
when you go and join your fleet squadron, for me it was F-14s here in Miramar, about, uh, there's about 30 more or less aviators because you had pilots and, and NFOs. Of those 30, they rotate about every year and a half. You're, you're, you get about half the officers go on and, and you get a new replenishment. So you never have everyone leave at the same time. But of that group, so I was with a group of about 15, 16, one of those crew would get selected to go to Top Gun. And I just happened to be fortunate enough in my time to uh, get selected and, and attend that school, which I have to say, even to the current day, with other Navy training I've done, civilian training, far and away, the uh, the highest level of intense uh, training I've, I've done. So I, I know you're being kind of humble there, but uh, when you say fortunate enough to be selected, what... What, what the, the, the Navy is, is the military is very merit based. Mm-hmm. Uh, all things considered, you uh, you're you're graded, you're ranked every year against your peers. You have what's called a fit rep, fitness report, where you are literally evaluated and ranked and numbered and bracked and stacked. So if you do well, you're going to see it objectively uh, every year. And there's other opportunities for rankings. If you rise to the top or near the top, then you're going to get rewarded. You're going to get some assignments, whether it's follow-on assignments in what you do or within the squadron for myself or if you're a ship driver or submariner, you're going to have different opportunities. It's very merit-based. So was it – you think it's your competitive nature or – your ability to follow rules. <laughs> well, everybody's very competitive in the Navy fighter community. Yeah. There's a bunch of alpha dogs uh, <laughs> running around, and that that includes today's Navy. I've been been around a little bit, and you know, females as well, and and, and the males. Uh, follow. I, I I'd have to say for myself, I never wanted to be a career military person. I didn't grow up in the military. I was not an academy grad. But I had a certain level of, of respect and understanding of what it took. So I'd say for me and my personality, it was a good balance between knowing when to be the, the company Navy person guy and also but not too much, right? I mean, what other, whatever organization you're in, whether it's civilian or military, you're going to have some extremes that you know, may not overall do well. Uh, you got to have some level of, of politicalness without, of course, selling yourself out or compromising yourself. So I think just my personality and my life experience, I was able to to walk that line and I think, quite frankly, to, to benefit from that. How many times have you seen Top Gun? <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Not, not a whole lot. I, I was in uh, flight school just finishing up. I'd gotten selected for F-14s in San Diego at, uh, at Fighter Town here in Miramar. So I saw it probably a few times. But of course, like most Hollywood uh, movies, it's uh, completely fictional and really doesn't mirror uh, reality hardly at all, if at all. I do have to ask though, what's your call sign or what was your call sign? <laughs> well, I have the public one, and then I have the one that at, uh, after a few <laughs> beers, uh, private. So my public one is Zimby. Uh, you you get your call sign. You you don't make your call sign. Well, I should say you, your reputation makes it. Uh, and usually, it's going to be something related with your name or when you mess up. I'll give you an example. Two guys, when I was close to leaving my squadron, two young guys show up, and they were working the airframes, and so they told the airframers to paint. And you do have your name painted on the side of the plane. I think one of them wanted to be Tiger, and the other one wanted to be Snake. Well, the uh, XO found out about it beforehand, so these guys thought they were just going to get their names painted up. The next morning, they show up, and they were Kitten and Worm. uh, (laughs) Those were the names that stuck with them for their entire careers. That's funny. (laughs) What's so yeah, after uh, after a few beers, I can tell you my uh, my non-public one <laughs> has something to do with the Philippines, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, 
It'll, it'll keep me guessing for a little while. Um, as you uh, look back on that that experience and you say, okay, um, you got out of the Navy. Uh, how, how did we get – I know you mentioned you, know, you come from a family of attorneys and lawyers. What made you decide to become a prosecutor? Yeah, so I uh, always wanted to be in trial. That's really why I wanted – became an attorney. Uh, that, that intrigued me. I started actually an insurance defense firm, a smaller firm here in Seattle, which now has grown. It's about three times the size of what it was when I joined in 1995. But I got a lot of experience right out of the gate. I wasn't just stuck in a, in a library during research. Uh, I was out there doing depositions almost immediately, some arbitration, some trials, and I really enjoyed it. But I realized the firm and that type of work, uh, I didn't see myself sitting in the corner office uh, in, in 10 or 20 years. And so I did it a little bit different. Most people, I don't, if they're going to become a prosecutor or a public defender, they usually do it right out of law school. But I, once again, I had about three years under my belt, had a young family, and I decided I want to go be a prosecutor. So I actually had met with a judge, Superior Court judge, who was a former prosecutor, and he shared some of his insights. I said, yeah, I want to do this. I was fortunate enough to get a position and became a criminal deputy prosecutor, and I loved it. I had the time of my life. I mean, I was in court eight hours a day, every day, and just trying cases. I thought I was on the right side. It was a wonderful office there. At the time, Norm Mailing was the prosecuting attorney for Seattle, quite a famous and highly respected individual. And I liked his philosophy, which was you you prosecute and you charge people appropriately. And then if they don't plead, then you can add charges versus just adding everything that's possible under the sink and then um, reducing and, and pleading out. So I, I did that for about two and a half years. I was in various divisions of King County Prosecutor's Office, loved it. Similar to the Navy, as you go down the hall, very like-minded people, um, goal-oriented and really about the job. Not a lot of political, at least at the level I was, really enjoyed it. But the problem was kind of slave wages. Uh, I mean, cops made more than us. Once again, I had a young family, mortgage, car payment. My uh, wife at the time wasn't working. So I think economic decisions really led to, to me leaving the office. And then, so now you're, uh, what, how do we do, condo litigation? Uh, yeah. So I, I left the prosecutor's office and I actually um, hung my own shingle and was doing actually some work for the my former firm. They invited me back, so I was a little bit of a hybrid between a sole practitioner and, and doing some contract work for them. That led to an opportunity to join a startup in uh, 2000. Exciting times in Seattle, as they are similar to now. A lot was going on, and really enjoyed that time. I, I was, became more of a business person than a lawyer, though I, I did some general counsel work for the firm. It was a small startup. Did that for about a year and a half, and then uh, 2001 happened and the uh, the dot-com crash, which coincided with then 9-11 happening, and I got mobilized uh, and went to active duty uh, with the Navy for a year and a half. And then after that, I left and came back to the U.S., did something else business-wise, and then joined a firm, which I ended up being 13 years and a partner, and that's uh, Parker Martin there in Seattle, a condominium construction defect and general counsel firm. And I've been doing that work now uh, for about 15 years. So digressing a little bit back only because I remember a little bit of story uh, for our listeners. I'm sure the, you were 
what was it, uh, the uh, first Gulf War? Or was it the second Gulf War where you were flying in? Yeah, it was Gulf War. Um, and I was, I was on the, the, the first uh, first mission uh, that, that night when the, the war kicked off. Yeah, and ended up, we were there for, we, we entered the Gulf two days before the war started. Uh, our carrier, there's one other, it was the first American carriers that had ever been in the, in the Persian Gulf, Gulf of Arabia. The Midway was out there as well. We were, I was on the Ranger. I launched off on the first mission that night. Uh, we don't have enough time uh, to, to tell that story now, but uh, over over some beers, when I tell you my uh, other call sign, we can we go through the uh, that mission. But yeah, we ended up spending the, the 43 days of full full war. The Gulf spent another month or so before we we headed back. So just out of curiosity, how how often does a plane not land on a carrier that the public doesn't hear about? Well, well, unfortunately, I mean, now it still happens. Uh, the public's going to know about it. You know, nowadays every sailor or military person that that's lost is 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 recognized. So, uh, I mean, certainly as far as the type of mission, what they're doing, no, the public doesn't know. But uh, if if you lose a plane nowadays, in fact, we did lose one. Uh, uh, a crew two doors down from me, a six squadron. Uh, that night, uh, I think it was the second night, uh, they didn't come back. Uh, we didn't find the remains till after the war. They did. They did find. Uh, they were able to find the remains, though, taken back to their families. I've heard some different things. What, real quick? I know it's a little bit of a digression, but what are your thoughts on the new F thirty five? Yeah, well, my my first introduction to these this multi-platform single uh, single platform multi-mission was the F eighteen. You know, when my time in the Navy was the last time where you really had specialty aircrew and specialty aircrafts. We had S threes that were anti-submarine and surveillance. We had A sixes that were bombers. We had F fourteens that were pure fighters. We had EA-6s that were pure electronic warfare and, and jamming. We had E-2s that were all surveillance and, and other electronic. Uh, right about my time when I was leaving flying in the mid-90s, the F-18, the Navy decided we're going to go with a single platform. It was an economic decision. Uh, you have one airframe, one engine, one maintenance facility saved, I'm sure, hundreds of millions, if not you know, billion uh, or more dollars on the budget and bottom line. With that, of course, you don't have to be an aviator or an expert or military person to say, well, if you combine everything into one aircraft, you're going to lose some capability. Overall, it's great. Um, F-35 is, is kind of like that. However, the technology leap between what I flew in an F-14 and an F-35, I think is almost as dramatic as uh, the prop age to the jet age. Uh, it's just, it's completely revolutionized aerial combat, aerial warfare, uh, the weapon systems and the capabilities are uh, exponentially increased with, with that platform, as is the cost. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of a cost overrun. But. It's a cool uh, cool airplane to see on an air show, though, and uh, see some of the videos, some of the YouTube videos. Absolutely. I'll tell you uh, real quick, a little quick digression, but equally as, as amazing is the technology today on the carrier landings. Uh, the F-14 is actually the last 
jet, the last fighter that was manually controlled. I mean, you, there was no computer override. So if you pulled back on the stick, the 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 aileron or the um, stabilizers would would move, and you'd get the full. And if you stalled, and you stalled. F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, F-35s, the computer flies. So if you pull back on the stick, the computer goes, well, we're not going to give you 100%. We're going to give you 70% because you might stall. Well, similar to landing on a carrier, in my day, you had some aids and you had some computer assistance. Nowadays, they have a system. I was over at the, um, the Navy Oceana a few months ago and took me to the landing signal officer school. They have now technology where the whole plane changes configuration. The wings, the flaps, uh, essentially you put a button, uh, a dot on where you want to land, the plane's going to land there every time. Oh, well. Yeah, it's impressive. That is impressive. Hey, Dan and Chris here. So walk us through what it's like being inside one of these amazing birds, uh, these, uh, uh, these planes. What, what is it like? I mean, most of us haven't probably been inside of them. Uh, fewer uh, probably have even seen one. Uh, flying so what is it like well you know they say you strap on a jet you know a fighter jet whether it's single seat or, or two dual seat uh you're, you're carrying a lot of you're wearing a lot of gear you're wearing a harness you're wearing a survival vest there's a lot of weight you're weighted down step up into the airplane you get strapped in of course the parachute's there but the parachute's part of the seat at least it is for the navy i know it's different in the air force um and you your cockpit which nowadays is is so technology it's screens right it's similar to a computer i mean they're computer screens like you are in office uh but you've got a lot of power there especially if you're flying off an aircraft carrier it's yeah my heart still uh just thinking about it now you know increases i, I never got bored every mission especially flying off the carrier uh you, you get your heart going it's it's exciting and it's the missions you do too i mean the flying was a heck of a lot of fun uh, the camaraderie, there's just so much that goes with it. I, I guess the analogy might be, the, I think of the, the heavy metal, the race cars of, of the 60s and 70s that were pretty pure and pretty basic, and you, you got into one of those. Whereas if you get into a Ferrari today, with all the technology and all the difference, is the Ferrari a better machine than a 67 Cobra? I, I guess, but there's something to be said for just strapping on a 67 AC Cobra and going down the road. Uh, they both have their, their advantages. So you started at an early age uh, as an aviator. You said you were 15 years old when you were um, started taking classes and 17 years when you got your pilot's license. Um, I have some other friends that are aviators in the civilian world, and one of the things that I've heard is that there's a shortage of new pilots coming into uh, the force, um, the civilian side. What would you say to the 15, 14, 13-year-old that's maybe listening to our show, and um, how would you encourage them to pursue, if they're interested in flying, what would you say to encourage them to pursue um, flight schools, uh, whether it's civilian or military? Yeah, I agree with you, first of all, that there's a huge shortage of uh, pilots coming, and it's only going to worsen. That's got to be balanced, though, with uh, my belief is we're going to have pilotless airplanes, civilian, in, I don't know, it's going to be quicker than we think. Is it going to be 30 years, 20 years from now? I, I don't know when. But that's, at some point, a lot of the current aircraft are going to be replaced. In fact, my understanding is Boeing can do it today. I mean, they, there's capability right now where... From a technology standpoint, uh, they can start building pilotless airplanes today. But that's going to be a while. 
Uh, if there's someone that loves flying 14 or 15 or 16 or, or whatever age, go to an airfield. There are the FBOs, the fixed-based operators, the places where you rent airplanes, gas airplanes. One thing about aviation community, it is a welcoming community. It is a passionate community. Anyone, you could be 60 years old and never have flown and show up, or 15, and they're going to embrace you. They're going to show you airplanes. They'll probably give you a ride. Someone will give you a ride for free. Uh, and if you like it, and if it's something that uh, interests you, then absolutely, there are plenty of flight schools. If you want to stay in the civilian route, uh, military. If you end up going military, there is a minimum obligation once you get your wings. I think these days it's 10 years. So you're, you are committing to a, a chunk of time. But right now, uh, and the airlines, it's very cyclical. But uh, when I was getting out of the military, I chose not to go to the airlines. Some of my friends and colleagues did. A couple of them had to pay for their own type rating in a 737. So they had to go to a school on their own, and I think it was about ten or fifteen thousand dollars out of their own, with no guarantee they get a job, because the airlines weren't hiring much. Nowadays, they will sponsor people; they will pay for those ratings. Uh, you just need to get some basic hours in initially, and today's pipeline, civilian world, yeah, they'll take care of you. Wow, very cool, um, Dan. Talking about dogfighting and Top Gun, um, what is do you have a, uh, a figure in history that uh, uh, was, was a Red Baron or, or other mm-hmm. figure uh, that uh, you know you, wa- you paid attention to his or hers uh, accomplishments as a pilot? Besides Absolutely. Iceman. Besides Iceman. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Chuck Yeager. Yeah, without a doubt. Chuck Yeager. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, broke the sound barrier. Uh, World War II, Ace, um, Korea. Yeah, absolutely, Chuck Yeager. What uh, do you happen to know? What kind of plane Chuck flew? Well, he flew uh, P fifty ones in World War Two. I think he flew. Um, I want to say F eighty sixes. I believe in Korea, and then he flew the um, Glorious Glennis. I think was the uh, the aircraft that broke the sound barrier. He went on to be a well. He was a four star general in the Air Force helped develop uh, many of the programs, or I should say some, some of the dogfighting and such in, uh, in the Air Force. He had a very accomplished Air Force career, and then in public life as well. Uh, he wrote a book, obviously a movie, uh, The Right Stuff, where he's a prominent uh, player in that as well. Speaking of books, we, n- we understand that you're an author of the book, The Lost, uh, Last Top Gun. Um, tell me, what was your inspiration to write the book? Yeah, so that was 10 years in the making. When I first uh, sat down to, to start writing, I was active duty Navy. I'd just come out of my flying squadron. And I think every generation has their story. Every military war has their story. And I just wanted to capture mine. Uh, and I did it in a way. It's, it's really fiction um, based on, on reality. And... So everything that's in the book is really it's true, but it didn't necessarily happen to me. So I didn't write an autobiography, but I kind of did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way, I protected uh, the names of the innocent or not so innocent, <laughs> and but having hopefully a level of of accuracy and and also in an entertainment level. So it's yeah, it's a story of what I call the last Top Gun, a fourteen uh, older guy that uh, is leaving the Navy and he meets two younger up and coming aviators, one female and male. So he relays kind of his story in the military versus today's Navy, today's world. 
Terrific. And I understand that uh, is it a, is it available on Amazon? Where can people? Find it, it is. Yeah, uh, Amazon, both on Kindle as well as uh, printed. And uh, so they're actually starting to to film Top Gun two. It's mm-hmm. been thirty three years since the first one. Wow. Tom Cruise was down here, I think, about a week ago filming. I think that's due to come out in July of two thousand nineteen. Uh, so I might try to do something with my book, uh, just do some promotion for that. That's terrific. Are you um, are you thinking of doing another uh, part, another book to follow on to the the last Top Gun, or is it? I I thought about it after I had finished it, but I've got other things I'm uh, I'm working on. I'm working on an actual business related book now, a lot of other things. So that that was it served its purpose. Once again, it was a snapshot in time. Uh, it captured, and I think it just stands on its own. Very cool. So. Now you're in, uh, well, let's just say it, slightly less exciting. What's the, what <laughs> is the most exciting? What, what gets you, you know, jacked uh, or excited about what you're doing now? What, what kind of case or what kind of work really uh, are you looking forward to that, that gets you excited? Yeah, so leaving flying uh, fighters off of, we even talk about flying off an aircraft carrier, but flying uh, fighters off an aircraft carrier, uh, being in combat, yeah, nothing's going to compare to that. And at least being in combat, that that's a good thing. I don't, I don't want to repeat. I, I used to say that the Navy and flying, when people asked me why I got out, I said, well, you know, it's similar, I think, to being an NFL player or a professional athlete. You, from the day you're, you're six years old, you're dreaming of being in the Super Bowl, and you play Pop Warner, and you play junior high and high school and college, you get drafted, you play, and you're a pro, and you're train, 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 and you actually make it to the Super Bowl, and then you win the Super Bowl, and you're like, oh, I want to come back. I want to win, you know, three-peat. Well, at least from my experience in the military, yeah, you train, train, train. You don't necessarily want to go to war, but you're training for war. And then you go there, and you have combat, and you see people die, and you see what happens, and you're like, I don't want to. You know, no, I don't want to do that again. Uh, been there, done that. Now I'm just going to keep on training, but I've already been there. Similar to flying, there's just not going to be an equivalent, at least that I found in civilian life. The closest was flying a, or driving a motorcycle real fast, but other than that, adrenaline, no. So I realized, and I was okay with that when I stepped away from flying. Uh, and realized that I, I had other things I wanted to pursue, different types of challenges and rewards and, and getting that juice going. So uh, from the civilian side, I still really enjoy being in front of a jury or a judge. It doesn't happen very often as a litigator. Um, but I, I'm helping people, and I get uh, that fulfillment and reward at the end of a case or end of a matter where if I'm fortunate enough to have prevailed or helped the client and see the change in their lives because the type of work I'm, I'm doing with HOAs and condos, it's people's homes. It's many times their single largest investment. It's their community. It's, it's neighbors. It means something to them. And then when it works and we get a successful outcome, then that is quite rewarding. And then from a personal side, outside of just work, you know, I still surf, I play hockey, I golf. I mean, there's enough to get my, my juices going from a physical level uh, as well. Speaking of uh, hockey, uh, who's your uh, all-time hockey favorite player, if you have one? Yeah, you know, it, it shifts. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, there was a, a goalie named Tony Esposito. Um, and then it just uh, it moved on as a different generation. So I, I, there's really no one that, that stands out individually. I mean, there's groups of players. I grew up in the, the likes of Bobby Orr and and, uh, and and guys like him. But um, just the, 
speaking of evolution and change, we talked about with airplanes, but my goodness, with hockey, the level of play in today's hockey player compared to when I was growing up, it is, it's, it's almost like a different game. The athleticism, I mean, if anyone watched the, the series here uh, a month or so ago with Alex Ovechkin in, in Washington and in Vegas, you have size and speed and power and, and scale. It's, it's wonderful to watch. Very nice. One, um, of the, one quick th- – I'm going to probably butcher this story. I'm going to try not to. But do you hear that about the goalie that was called up? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Feeling the last couple of minutes or something like that? Are you are – you, uh, What? Uh, that, that, that's the- actually happened uh, a few times in the past, but the, the player's never gotten into the game. So what happens is in each game in the NHL, there's, there's only two goalies. So there's a starter goalie and then they have a backup goalie that sits at the bench. Well, on occasion, extremely rare, you'll get uh, uh, something happening and they need a third goalie. So they usually will, will have somebody that's in town and they're usually a beer league player like I was. Uh, so this guy actually – so they sign him for a day contract uh, and this guy actually got in the game as a Chicago Blackhawks. He played an entire period, shut out the team, and they ended up winning 5-2. to two. Yeah. It was a phenomenal story. There's, I think, some 38-year-old uh, um, accountant, CPA or something, beer league hockey. Yeah, yeah. Yep. exactly. Well, we, you've got that to still aspire to. Although you I do. To. Yeah, my dad, yeah, after that, he emailed me. He's like, there's still a chance. You can still do it. <laughs> you may have to hang out in Vegas, though. <laughs> yeah. What did exactly. you, th- you think of that, the expansion? I I loved it. I uh, I jumped on on board. In fact, I went to one of the games midseason. As I said, I think earlier, uh, Chicago. You know, born in Chicago and Chicago Blackhawks. I've always been a lifelong fan of them, and they've had a great run. They won the cup three times in six years. Uh, This last year, though, was the first time in ten years they haven't made the playoffs, and they're they're definitely on a downward trend. So I picked up, uh, and I was going to say, okay, for the Playoffs are going to root for Vegas. I've been there. They do it right. And I think it's a great story. I mean, they're a bunch of cast-offs. Every one of them was a cast-off from the teams. Uh, and they just came together. I think it's a great sports story, not just for hockey, not just for pros. But I think anyone can learn from that. Is uh, It is the power of camaraderie and teamwork that uh, can overcome just on an individual skill level. Absolutely. Speaking of learning, uh, Dan, what have, um, what's been sort of your go-to uh, skills or uh tactics that have helped you be successful in your life obviously you you went through the top flight school uh, as a top guns you know graduated and and led a a successful military career Uh, then came into the private sector and uh were was a a partner at a successful law firm barker martin in seattle washington um obviously you've you've accomplished a lot and what had my question and I think some of our listeners would probably want to know what are the skills or knowledge or the kind of tactics that, that have helped you uh, succeed? In life? Yeah, I think for me, when I actually think about it, is it, it came natural to me. I didn't realize it was happening. But to be honest, I started work when I was eight years old. My first job, I was literally uh, as an eight-year-old delivering papers just once a week. Uh, and then when I moved to California at 12, I became a, a paper boy uh, on a daily paper. Uh, did it myself. You know, I wasn't having my, my parents uh, help me or drive me around. I started working at a gas station. I just continued to work and work and work, and I always have. 
And with that, I didn't realize it was happening, but there was a, a work ethic that just got instilled in me. And also because I had so many jobs and worked for so many different types of people, both as supervisors and bosses and colleagues and coworkers, it just absorbed a lot of different ways that people react in, in the business environment. Uh, and I was able to take the best of the best and leave the worst of the worst. And I'm also motivated by that type of environment. I like, it's not so much, you know, the financials, I'm not necessarily money oriented though. Of course, uh, that, that helps if you've, if you've got that lifestyle or, or what comes with it, but I'm not motivated by it. I'm not motivated necessarily by, Oh, having to get accolades all the time and pats on the back. But of course, you know, that, that helps. But I do like that environment. I like achieving things. I like whatever, whether it's a newspaper job where I'm getting the last paper you know, delivered and I'm done or if I'm working at a gas station and I'm closing the shop and everything's clean or I'm working as a lawyer and I finish that case. I, I like I'm, I'm, I guess, project, if you will, uh, driven and, and results and problem solving. Then how so just have people uh, in your life been there to, to help mentor you along or has this been a case of sort of as you're going you're learning and you're adapting and evolving um, or have you had you know people come in your into your life and help lead you in, in a direction or a different one yeah I haven't had those those classic mentors with the exception I had a neighbor when I was from about age 9 to 14 who was a former Air Force fighter pilot, and he's probably, well, he is the one that was most instrumental in me going to the military, because I mentioned I had zero military in my family. I mean, go back decades or, I mean, generations, probably to when we first uh, immigrated here. So he was he was definitely a, a mentor role model. But other than him individually, I've never had that formal, but as I said, I think I just, through osmosis, kind of took it from, from various uh, Role models, especially when I was in the military, I mean, it's more formalized there. You had commanding officers, you had executive officers, a lot of people, uh, leadership styles uh, that that I think just seeped in through that mentoring process. Plus, I had a, my father, who is a successful business person and, and lawyer. We're very close. Uh, I've certainly taken a lot from him, and, and he shared quite a bit. So although I wouldn't necessarily call him a mentor, I think of him more as a father, there, there certainly was some mentoring going on. What advice would you give our listeners for joining a group? You formed a law firm, uh, put some guys together. What did you uh, learn or what would you recommend people do when they're trying to partner up a business of any kind yeah. uh, in terms of teamwork, looking for a partner or partners? What kinds of things would you advise people to do? Yeah, I think first and foremost – You've got to ask yourself, is this really what I want? Because I saw it from my parents. Both my, my mother was a business person as well. And I realized, and I didn't, I didn't have this, uh, this realization until much later in life, but they, they, didn't, they were not good partners. They, uh, I mean, they didn't partner together, but both of them individually just didn't have successful partnerships. Individually, they were very successful. Mm-hmm. Myself, I have had successful partnerships, but I think you need to first ask yourself, is that really what I want? Mm-hmm. Because there's plenty of businesses out there that can be sole proprietors versus uh, partners. But if so, ask yourself, yeah, is that what I want? Is that what do I get the fulfillment and how do I work? Uh, so if it is, yes, you want the partnership because, of course, usually you're going to have more opportunity with a large organization or partners. 
and you've, you've realized that, then I think it's really important to take a step back and don't even talk about the business itself with your prospective partners. But as you just asked me, you know, what are the important things in life? What do you want out of life, both short-term and long-term? You know, how important is money versus quality of life versus building something versus um, you know, achieving something? And make sure that that's congruent. And once that's congruent, then it's going to happen. Then you just go through the details. Okay, what does the organization look like? You can work with business uh, people, mentors, coaches, and stuff to, to build the structure or the organization. But you have to have that foundation first and the compatibility and the similarity. That, that's my thought. What was your, without getting into too many details, what was your biggest challenge as a team with one of your one of your groups or one of your business partners and how did you or what was your biggest challenge and how'd you get yeah through it? yeah so i think the biggest challenge was i think it was more of a of, well somewhat of a personality difference but it translated into then how it, it played out in in the business so having essentially a fundamental different perspective coming at a at a client or a matter or a problem from a different perspective where, okay, I want to try to see that person's uh, vantage, and, but I just, I just don't. And working through that is difficult. That was far and away because it came up repeatedly. And realizing that I wasn't saying that I'm right and that person's wrong or they have to do it my way, um, but I didn't. I just most of the time couldn't get in uh, in that person's shoes, and then I think that's the the advantage of having more than just one other partner. Now you can go to the other partner and say, okay, uh, let's look at this collectively. Sometimes uh, it happened where it went against what I would have done, but part of the greater good, and that, and that's fine. And you know, ultimately, it's going to work out. Oh, it doesn't have to be my way, uh, but that definitely was the biggest challenge. So is it better to have an odd number of partners then? <laughs> well, fortunately, we've never had a vote. Uh, I've never had a vote my shares, if you will, on, on any issue. Um, Dan, what um, what's inspired you in your life? You've done a lot of different things. You pursued uh, many different careers and, and overcame a lot of different, uh, I guess, challenges by, by way of, of accomplishment. Um what, what's inspired you? Uh, yeah, what inspires me most is, is, is life and the continued pursuit of, uh, of evolving and learning, uh, whether it be traveling. I mean, I love to travel different cultures, different uh, locations, different regions, whether it's in the law, you know, continue to, to learn new cases and be on uh, understanding how that works. Big ones, relationships, family. I mean, geez, we haven't talked to my, my, my family. I've got two kids, a, a 22-year-old and a, and a 19-year-old, and evolving as a parent. Oh, my goodness, I've learned more parenting uh, than I have uh, probably in any aspect of life. So it's that cont- continuing to, to learn and experience, uh, and that will go to, to the day I, I die, my last breath. and There will still be you know, things that I haven't, haven't learned and, and evolved. So when it's comes, wonderful. When it comes to learning, do you do you like to read? Do you like uh, to listen to experience? Yeah, I I like to experience. You know, I I certainly would rather I prefer to read more. I just don't make the time for it. 
Uh, so I'll I'll do a lot on the on the web and look at whether it's TED talks or other types of, of videos. Certainly, we'll read you know books and other materials. As I mentioned, I'm I'm, I'm writing, so that takes time and doing research on that. Speaking to people, do a lot of events, networking events, getting out there in the industry. You know, I recently moved down here about eight months ago, so there's a whole city, a whole region, Southern California. To learn about both from a business standpoint, from a recreational lifestyle standpoint, cultural standpoint, um, yeah. So it's it's multifaceted. That sounds exciting. I've uh, I understand I understand that feeling of moving to a new place and learning how to adapt to the culture, uh, both in the business and social. Having spent four years, as you know, in Hawaii and and, and then coming back to the Pacific Northwest, um, so that is an exciting uh, process. But going to books, I know you've made a recommendation to me on, on a book once, and I, I really liked it. Um, are there any um, books that you find yourself recommending to your friends and your family as a way to either read something interesting or to learn something new? Yeah, there's. I've been spending the last uh, several years on more individual transformational work, so there's certainly uh, those books out there. I think from a business aspect, especially if there's somebody that wants to start their own business or their, start their own company, it's a little dated. I think it came out like 10 or 15 years ago, but it's uh, it's called The E-Myth, uh, Entrepreneurial Myth. Uh, I think it's a great book. It's a, it's a guidebook, and essentially the premise there is so many people want to start their own businesses because they think, oh, they're working for somebody else. They don't have the freedom. I want the freedom of being my own boss. They go create this company, and they realize they're a slave to themselves. They can't go on vacations. They they can't. There's no exit strategy for selling the business. So I think it's a wonderful book. Even if you're not going to create your own business, uh, it, it still helps in, in Gives you some some ideas and some perspectives that uh, are helpful. Um, you know, nowadays there's just so much out there on the web too. We talked about not just books, but different websites. You know, the masters classes and such. You you can just take you know a course or take an, an hour or two video, a YouTube video. Information is there. Just got to find. You got to make the time for it. <laughs> Kind of along those lines, having the perspective of being at various places throughout the United States, what do you think it is about the Puget Sound What is our greatest strength? The people from this area or currently living in this area, what do you think the Puget Sound area strongest uh, point is for living here and, and, and starting a business in this area? Yeah, I think the time is, is perfect. I think that uh, the energy in what's happening in Seattle, uh, I won't say is unparalleled, but it's similar to you know Silicon Valley in, uh, in the 80s, uh, the dot-com of, of 2000s of Seattle. So I, I think just you've got the inflow and input of these tech companies that are now really identifying Seattle versus Silicon Valley because of cost, right? When I mean, we think Seattle is so expensive, well, compared to Bay Area, it's actually a, a pretty good deal. Um, and then it's just been the attitude. I mean, whether it's grunge rock, you know, from, from the 90s, or it's, hey, we're up here, we're going to be a little bit different, you know, the Starbucks. Um, is it do you have a monopoly on it? No. Um, but I think from a community, uh, just a little bit of an edge, 
Uh, and a, t- a level of tolerance that's a little bit greater. So you've got, I think, the best of both worlds. you got a little bit of an attitude, uh, but you also have the tolerance. And there's just so much opportunity. There's, there's so much going on right now. And I think it's just a vibe. I mean, Chris, you said at the beginning of the interview, which is Seattle is just exploding. I mean, look at the, cla- the cranes and the, and the east side as well. You know, Now the east side as well. It's a whole region that has that energy. And the youth as well. I mean, you've got a lot of millennials that are coming up to the Northwest. You know, it was it was hip back in the 90s for grunge, but that didn't translate into much business. Now it's hip because of tech, uh, and that is translating across the board into every industry. On the flip side, then, what do you think uh, Seattleites, if you will, need to look out for when dealing with people from outside the area? What do you What's the one mistake we make or, you know, is it that arrogance that we overlook? Yeah, well, you know, I've heard that Seattle chill, right? I didn't experience myself, but I think that was when I moved. I was a young family and I just had, I had some military connections and work and such. But there's that Seattle chill. And I think a little bit of that arrogance of, yeah, we are different for a reason and, but at the same time, as I said, I think it's it's highly tolerant uh, community as well. Uh, collectively, is is there a mistake? I, I don't I don't know. I didn't I didn't experience it that much, uh, if at all. And I think it's more of a welcoming community. But if there was, you know, what I have heard is a little bit of that elitism, a little bit of that that chill. Um, Dan, if you were to go back in time and do it all, all over again. Uh, what would you do differently, if anything? I wouldn't eat so much chocolate. But <laughs> other than that, no, I, I, you know, I don't. I learned from my father: never look back. I never mean, what's back. that's just wasted energy. Okay. Uh, and I don't. I really, there's nothing. I, I think that I, I would do differently. Is that to say that my life has been, uh, you no know, issues, no challenges? Of course not. But with challenge comes opportunity. I mean, that that's where you really learn. Uh, so no, there's there's nothing I would I would do differently. So I've not had a chance to meet your father, but I I've heard um, a lot of great things from you, and uh, one of the things that stood out uh, for me was his uh, passion for traveling, and which I think uh, has has transferred to you because uh, you you enjoy traveling as well, um, and his willingness to go outside and explore different places. Um, I think was it a couple of years ago that he uh, went on on a tour of Albania uh, on on his own, and uh, what an amazing no one no one goes to Albania. I, <laughs> well, <laughs> a lot of people do go, uh, but fewer uh, fewer on on their own uh, without a guide and without a group, and and so um, it is uh, it is something that has inspired me as uh, you know a thirty some year old uh, individual in Seattle. Um, having spent 20 years here, um, to start to pursue travel as a way to ex- continue to expand myself and also see the world that, that I don't see here. Um, so uh, it is amazing to have heard about your father and, and, and learn of his uh, willingness and passion for travel. Yeah, it was both my father and my mother, actually. In fact, when I was four years old, I've got two older sisters, and when I was four, uh, we were living in Chicago, and my parents sold everything, and we moved to Europe, and it was going to be permanent, or at least for a while. We got a VW camper and just traveled around 
fortunately, uh, in Turkey, my dad ended up contracting hepatitis and had to come back to, to the U.S., and, and that was the end of our move. But we went back to Europe several times, and, and that was just it, as you mentioned, Chris. When I, by the time I was 10, I think I had been to Europe five or six times. I'd been to Africa. And so travel, my, my parents, that's what their passion was. That's where they spent their money. And I, I think there's no better education. There's no better uh, experience than being able to, to travel. And I've, I've tried to do that as well. A little off topic, not to get too political, but the old head tax that kind of came rolling through here <laughs> from from your, you know, homeowners condo experience, things like that. Do you have any uh, solution from for the homeless situation here? Yeah, you know, I attended a meeting up in Seattle about a year ago, and it was at um, town hall, and they had representatives from the uh, the government, city from industry and from the um, nonprofits. And I got to say, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely an erudite, just a, a lay person on this. I am not an expert by any means. But I got to say, after, after listening to that two-hour meeting, uh, what I came across is there's a pretty basic solution. Um, implementation may not be basic, but it's a basic solution. And it, in my mind, because it's let's just go back a second. It's not just the homeless. The problem is the affordable housing, because there is a lot of support, a lot of money, a lot of resources to feed the homeless, to shelter the homeless. But it's getting them to the next level out of homelessness into affordable housing. That's the real crisis. But other areas have done it. San Francisco is doing a decent job of it, other Midwestern cities. And so to me, the answer was pretty simple. It has to be a a unified effort between the city, private uh, industry and companies, and the nonprofits. And really what it seemed to me, one of the major breakdowns was the city refusing on some of this zoning. So for instance, there was a developer that said, hey, I'll develop this, this affordable housing. And in fact, it was in, um, they've got what's currently zoned in industrial down by the uh, slough, what's um in South Seattle, Soda. Uh, Soda. but I can't because you got industrial. If you just open that up to multifamily, you know we'll build it today. So we get the support of changing some of the zoning. But then the reason the city doesn't want to change the zoning because they want the income tax, right? For okay, industrial, commercial, we're going to get the money. Uh, it, it's something's broken, right? Something's got to give. So if the city were to give some and city council on the zoning, you have funding, you have money coming in from private, you know, companies. And then you've got the nonprofits that can build it. Uh, once again, I'm just a lay person. What do I know? But it seems like the answer is is there. And would you would you have any recommendations for people in Seattle um, on how to better engage with their city? Um, sounds like you've attended some events and meetings uh, in the past. Are there any channels for for people to become more involved uh, with city governance? Well, I would expand that not just to city but to state as well. I was. Um, completely naive and, uh, and and had no idea really the political system until I joined my former firm there. We were we were pretty pretty involved with state legislature dealing with condominium laws. Although I didn't do it, but I had a couple partners, uh, Dean Martin and Marlon Hawkins and Jeremy Stowell, that were actively involved. So although I didn't necessarily go down to Olympia much, I saw what was happening and I saw the power of involvement and it doesn't take much it literally can be a phone call or a meeting to the city council person or to your representative or senator for the state 
showing up because what you have is you have paid lobbyists, right? But so the, the legislators and the city council people know that there is a lot of weight of just a civilian resident that shows up and with an opinion. It really doesn't take much. So yes, I'd strongly, if you feel strongly about an issue, then contact, literally contact your congressperson, uh, state side, federal side, or city council person, or King County Council. Very good. Sounds advice. Dan, um, as we're, we're close to wrapping up here, uh, can you tell us, can you give us a preview of what uh, the new work that you're doing, the new book that you're writing, or is that something you're going to hold off? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure how interested your listeners will be because it's a, it's industry specific. It's it's dispute resolution really on the homeowner association side. I mean, I've been doing this now for 15, 16 years. I'd like to think I've seen it all, though, in different iterations. And the constant theme that I see is really a lack of information. Parties don't want to act poorly. Boards don't want to, you know, act badly. And, and individual owners, neighbors don't want to. But a lot of times. They just don't understand and don't have the information. So it's really 15 years of experience uh, put into a bunch of different stories and, and hopefully a practical guide to dispute resolution. Very nice. I, uh, there's an old, my mother will like this, but there's an old uh, uh, YouTube video uh, with the Navy guy. I think he's given a commencement speech to the University of Texas. He talks about making his bed every day. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, Special Operations uh, Admiral. Yeah. Yeah. All that. So... What's one thing you do every day or uh, what you would recommend doing every day for success? Yeah, make your bed. I, de I definitely do that but, uh, after that. Um, I, one thing I do is I check in and is being living in the moment. Uh, there's, it's so easy to get ahead of ourselves, to get ahead of myself and be thinking of what's going to happen next week or three years from now or five years from now. And I realize in my life that it so rarely actually happens that way. But if, I've, if I'm looking out three months or five months, I don't even see what's in front of me. I don't even see what's going down right next to me. That's a great opportunity. So it's, it's literally checking in with myself a couple times a day, if not at least when I'm going to bed or when I'm waking up in the morning. And, and also really trying to be in the moment uh, experiencing different things, whether it's you know work related or if it's in a relationship or if it's out you know surfing. I don't. I'm not thinking about work. I'm I'm actually thinking about the waves and, and enjoying what I'm doing. And part of that I think is is intuition. I mean, you didn't really ask me, um, but I think that's really the bottom line of of my life at this point is figuring out that uh, listening to my intuition, listening to my gut, versus trying to analyze and think with my head. So when we when you talk about the intuition aspect of it, you know I've uh, I've considered myself an intuitive person, um, but lately I've been finding that uh, I've been I've been wanting to question my intuition, and so I, I'm doing a, a basically a gut check on some some things. Um, it's worked out in favor of my intuition overall, uh, but there's been times where my intuition was was not necessarily correct. Um, have you? Do you do a, a check, intuition check, or is it uh, just kind of let it kind of move you in that direction? Well, first I'd say we all are intuitive. Yeah. Um, we all are born with an amazing intuition. It's what we do with that. And I, I'd say that we mess it up when we start thinking. Um, and so I would, I would uh, question you. 
Chris. When you say sometimes you've, your intuition may not have, have led you correctly, I'd really look at that and really analyze and say, is that true? Mm. Because I would venture to say without even knowing what, what you're talking about with the issues is if you're critical of your intuition, it's because your head is throwing in judgments that may, may not be accurate. You may be coming from a place in your head that if you really strip that away, uh, I find that uh, overwhelmingly, if not universally, your intuition is going to guide you. Now, it may not be immediately evident, but at the same time, I think if, if you play it out. So, yes, I as I said, I do do those gut checks. And ultimately, if I have a big decision or even a little decision, I'll do an uh-huh or uh-uh. You know, how's it feel? Uh-huh or uh-uh without trying to think about it. Along those lines, I'm a big believer that there's a very, very fine line between – perseverance and stupidity <laughs> so how, how do you how would you define the difference right at what point because everybody goes has some struggles and tries some stuff but at what point is you know persevering and trying really hard at something turn into stupidity and you should go a different direction or yeah well i i'd, I'd throw that back it's like a, a answering a question with another question i'd say the adage you know the definition of insanity right right yeah. it's uh repeated conduct with a different expecting a different result so i think that's it if it hasn't worked the first time try to change something yeah. if it hasn't worked if you don't change it, if you're just doing the same thing you're saying perseverance well i just have to keep on doing this well how's that working for you i think that's a great question to ask yourself or if you see that of a friend or someone Oh, I want to do this. And, you know, I really guess, oh, how's that working for you? Um, and and you, the answer will come. And you'll know whether, oh, it's just a matter of I just need to tweak something and keep on persevering. But I'm saying if you don't change anything, if you're continuing doing the same thing and not reaching that objective, then that's not perseverance. That's stupidity. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems like a pretty good note to end on. <laughs> Darn, I was just getting started. This is fun. Well, I, I do want to. I do. Wanna, I do want to kind of take it on the the positive side a little bit uh, as a way to finish it up. So, Dan, um, you know, going back to the, the inspiration part of of our podcast uh, and our listeners uh, in the greater Puget Sound area, what what would you tell them as as they're you know embarking life? Sounds like intuition and, and following your intuition is one of them. What other things would you advice would you give listeners as, as a way to uh, live a better life and a more optimal life, uh, both in their personal side and maybe in the business side? Yeah, all I can say is, you know, from what, what I've found for myself, and, and that is I'm not as smart as I think I am. Uh, I'm not as dumb as, as I think I might be. Uh, as we alluded to or we talked about, Seattle is just an amazing place. There's great people out there. There's great resources so realize that uh, you're part of it. Uh, there's places to go to try to, to improve, whether that's business or personal or, or, or what have you. Um, and yeah, if there's going to be stumbles along the way, don't be discouraged. I mean, I, I really think that's a great adage is uh, with, with challenge comes opportunity. With crisis comes opportunity. That's really where, where leaps are made uh, and an achievement is, is made. Um, it's a fun place. Get out and enjoy. I mean, you're living in Seattle for a reason, right? I mean, there's the mountains, there's skiing, there's water, there's so much to do. I remember I'd been there just about a year and it was raining 
outside. I was on a Saturday and I looked around. My na- one of my neighbors is gardening. Uh, my wife at the time was gardening. The kids are out playing. I'm like, so what? So it's raining. It's it's a beautiful area. Uh, take advantage of it. You live there for a reason. Liquid sunshine. It doesn't rain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Exactly. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Sound Conversations podcast. I really appreciate your time uh, from sunny San Diego. Um, Obviously, uh, run out and grab the book, The Last Top Gun. Last Top Gun. <laughs> I think we need to watch the premiere when it comes out. With Dan. We need to go visit Dan in San Diego to watch this. It, sound, it sounds like a plan. <laughs> Thanks, Chance. I uh, greatly appreciate it, enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to listening to more of your podcasts in the future. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Dan. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you, listeners. Another wonderful episode of Sound Conversations. I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are going to be walking around in a 9 to 5 job, miserable and angry and bitter. Ladies and gents, Chris Giuliameti here. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I wanted to take a moment to share with you that you can now find us on Facebook and Instagram under Sound Conversations Podcast. We have launched the social media pages as a way to create a channel to connect with you and hear your suggestions, comments, and ideas for future episodes. This is also an opportunity for you to get behind-the-scenes pictures and footage of your favorite episodes, plus access bonus content. So please take a moment, look us up on Facebook or Instagram under Sound Conversations Podcast.